Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, where we will be doing an in-depth structured analysis of Patrick Rothfuss's Kingkiller Chronicle. We're your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode number two, and that's why you always leave a note. This week, we will be looking at chapters three through six through a lens of unreliable narrators. As a note, we are aware that last week we said we would be going through chapter five, but upon further review, we felt that we needed to include chapter six in this analysis. So if you would like to pause the pod and catch up, please do so now. Okay, now that you have caught up, on to our regularly scheduled podcast. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. As always, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Da Books. So as a reminder, each week we will be examining a section of the books through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We'll also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemus of the week. And after that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. We'll also wrap things up with seven words from the books and our own lives. And as a reminder to our community, it's perfectly fine to critique the text. That's what it's there for. That said, we will not stand for any abuse of the author responsible for it. A quick warning here. All of our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've read The Name of the Wind and the Wise Man's Fear, as well as The Lightning Tree and The Slow Regard of Silent Things, or B, you're one of those weird folks who don't mind having spoilers. As always, we will be starting the pod with a 45-second recap of the section that we have decided to read. This time it is Will's turn, and if Will goes over 45 seconds, he will have to eat a cherry for the first time since he was eight years old. Eight-year-old me knew what he was about. Sure. All right, Will, are you ready for your 45-second recap? I am. I got a timer ready. In three... Two, one, go. Kvoth gets the mounting board and hangs a sword. He gets an iron rod to beat a clod. He hides from a crowd when someone recognizes him aloud. He kills some Skraelin while Chronicler is wailing. They go back to the inn to account for their sins. Vast chastises Coat for only leaving a note. Vast makes not a peep while watching Kvoth sleep. Chronicler bargains to hear Kvoth's tale, though he almost fails. Kvoth ultimately relents as long as the law doesn't catch his scent and agrees it will require a three-day margin. What? <laughs> you were too clever by half, but it was only 26 seconds. So you win. <laughs> too clever by half. Put that on a crest. <laughs> <laughs> Might have to. <laughs> no cherries for you. The streak continues. <laughs> Don't expect that from me. I won't. Let's get into what all of that said, because I like this chapter a lot, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts. We're looking at this through the lens of an unreliable narrator, as we've said. An unreliable narrator is essentially what we all are. Someone who is trying to tell a story, and they're always only telling their part of the story, or the story as they know it. And so what we're going to be looking at is examples of characters repeating stories and passing on information that may or may not be accurate. So the first thing that we get is Graham coming in, Graham is the town's carpenter, and he has brought what looks essentially like a ginormous piece of iron, but it's actually wood that is meant as a mounting board for a sword. 
and he's spent a lot of time and effort making this thing that by all accounts should be rather simple and kind of fade in the background because it's a mounting board into a beautiful work of art or at least as beautiful as he's ever made. Now he's a carpenter in a very small town. There's probably not a lot of room in his life for making things look lovely, but he's very proud of this piece. And from what he said, it took a long time to char it so that the wood grain came out and it took a long time to even etch the word folly into this board. And now folly is presumably the name of the sword. He claims that it took hours to even get it to like, char and uh, chisel. He mentions that he had to use an iron chisel. He had to use hot iron at the smithy to get the word to be seen even on this mounting board, which is heavy as a sheet of iron. And I also noticed that he had a cunning gleam, though, when asked about the price, which means that there was probably a little bit of, if not outright falsehood, maybe perhaps certain exaggerations for the sake of extracting a better profit margin. I can tell that Kvothe is very keen on paying people for their work and paying what it's worth or more for the local artisans. Yeah, he tells them to keep the change. I have a question for you. Do you think that the sword is actually named Folly? I don't know. I think that the identity of the sword is being purposefully kept obfuscated. We're meant to think that it's named Folly. And I think that's also some of that unreliable narration there on the part of our own narrator. We're being given a little bit of sleight of hand where we're told to look one way and maybe there's something else going on. Quoth never actually says that the sword is named Folly. Graham says odd name for a sword, but he doesn't actually get it confirmed that that's the name of the sword. We don't see the sword quite yet, but there are, again, mentions of iron nails and a lot of mentions of iron throughout this section of the book. And one thing I do know is that fey creatures, especially Bast, do not appreciate having iron in their presence. My own thoughts about Folly, because it's said later on that it was almost like a reproach, I don't think that the name of the sword is Folly. Now, if we remember from the part where Kvothe gets his sword from Ademaray, the name of that sword is Sesra, or Sisura, depending on who is talking about it. Quoth waits until after Graham leaves to hang the sword on the mounting board. He has Bast go and retrieve the sword from wherever he's hidden it. Under his bed. Which also makes me think that Bast is not wanting it to be seen. He's feeling guilty over something or feeling upset over something. Or that that sword is one of the swords from Ademre. But I don't think it was Quoth's. I think that Quoth may have been charged with returning it to Ademre. I actually read Bast's sheepishness about having it under the bed as sort of an admission that it wasn't a very good hiding place. Like when you're a little kid, where do you hide stuff? It's under the bed. Now why would he be hiding it? It's almost like it's his version of safekeeping and it's not a very well hidden thing. What do you think of my idea that maybe it isn't both sword? I think it's possible. I think that name Folly I think it's a reminder to him of the folly of choosing violence as the first recourse. I also wonder if it may have been folly for 
allowing someone to die, like that he made a poor decision and it resulted in the death of this person and that that's why he has to take the sword. And I think it is on its way back. And I think that might be why Bast is so horrified by the idea of it being out in the open. So one thing you've mentioned before is that there was a lot of emphasis placed on Quoth's hands not shaking. Yeah, that really stuck with me because at no other place did we hear him described as having a handshake or anything like that. And so the only reason that you would say that is if there's a reason to think that his hand might shake when he holds the sword. The way that it's talked about, it's almost like any time that he remembers his coat, he is no longer as affected by the sword being in his presence. Moving on, halfway through this particular day that is destined to be quiet and boring, noise pours into the waystone like a gentle wave as a dozen or more people come to stay the night. As part of that crowd, the narrator of the story calls out two travelers in particular, one with dark hair and one with sandy hair, which mirror the descriptions of Will and Sim, who are two of Quoth's friends from the university, as we will see later on. And it's very interesting that these two are singled out in particular, because they're the only ones that are given descriptions of their appearance. Whether these are actually Willem and Simmon, or just remind the audience of them, we don't know. Along with this group of travelers, there is also a tinker who goes out and sells his wares, and at that time we get a old children's rhyme about the Chandrian. Yes, and sometimes there's more truth in legend than in history. And sometimes there's more salt in ham than in turkey, as they say in the great Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode, Puma Man. That's right, Puma Man. Go look it up. Moving on. <laughs> Expect more of that. So, <laughs> the children's rhyme talks about three of the Chandrian. We know that there are seven of them, but we get three verses. The first one appears to be about one called Cyphus. And that one is, when the hearth fire turns to blue, what to do, what to do. Run outside, run and hide. That's interesting to me. Normally when you'd say run and hide, you would want to hide indoors as opposed to running outdoors. Seems like you would be easier to spot outdoors. Right. The next one is, when his eyes are black as crows, where to go, where to go, near and far, here they are. Which is a reference to Ferule or Cinder. Cinder is the one that Kvoth has encountered most often. Cinder is likely the one that killed Kvoth's parents, either that or it was possibly Haliax. Cinder is the leader of the bandits that Kvoth has to go hunt down to retrieve the mayor's coin in book two. We've got the third verse. See a man without a face. Move like ghosts from place to place. What's their plan? What's their plan? Chandrian. Chandrian. And the man without a face is a reference to Haliax or Alaxel. And it's interesting if we think about a couple of the other stories that have happened in the two books. There are references to two other people that could possibly be Haliax. One of those is Jax and one of them is Iax. And if you look at writing, J and I look very similar in uppercase. 
it stands to reason that they may be the same person. But also, if you think about how a lot of oral traditions or even written accounts slightly change every time that they are retold or rewritten. It's a game of historical telephone going on, and we see this all the time in our own oral traditions. I do have a little bit of a theory about why Quoth chose to settle down, as it were, in Noir. He has had a bear of a time finding any references to the Chandrian, and we have, in 28 pages of the book, found two different stories about the Chandrian going on. We have heard the Chandrian talked about by Old Cobb in the inn, and we hear this children's rhyme. Children's rhymes are notoriously difficult to root out. Once you know them, they just stick in your head. I mean, to this day, kids are singing about London Bridge falling down with no clue what that means, and they're singing about Ring Around the Rosie with no context about the Black Plague. You'd be surprised at what is hidden away in children's rhymes. So maybe this place has more information, kind of like Traben did with the Barrow. Going back to the Travelers at the Inn, this is the first time that we have reference to the inn being boisterous and full of music. This is also where we get our first mention of the greatest song never heard, Tinker Tanner. It's something that's often talked about, but we never get the verses to it, except for one kid making up a verse. It seems to me like it's the equivalent of Tyrion Lannister's and then I took a donkey into a brothel joke. We'll never know what Tinker Tanner is actually like. I hope it stays that way. It is kind of a great running joke. One thing that we mentioned the last time that I think is even more obvious this time is that when there is music playing, the shell or the jacket around Kvothe that is coat kind of disappears. It's been pointed out even more heavy-handedly in this particular section because the sandy-haired young man says, You're Kvothe. When Kvothe is recognized, there's a little snippet of the whole reason that this is called the Kingkiller Chronicle. The sandy-haired young man who is clearly inebriated is saying, I saw where you killed him. He says that it happened in Imre, in front of the fountain. And Imre does play a big part. It's where the university is. It's where the majority, I'd say, of the story that Quoth tells Chronicler is. Quoth gives that great little non-denial, Really? I think I look just like him. My assistant disagrees. Now, as soon as he's noted to be Kvothe, he does something that is probably a glamour, where he makes it appear that he has twisted his knee badly enough where he needs to be removed from this situation. Just as a heads up, this book was written before Skyrim came out, but I do find it funny that the cover story he tells to Bast is that he took an arrow to the knee. And this is also where we see Quoth give a very interesting directive to Bast. He tells him, hear me three times. I always take that to mean first with your ears, then with your mind, and then with your heart to really internalize it. And then, of course, Bast responds with that very formal, I hear you three times. And again, it's the number three. There's a lot of threes in this. I also noticed something interesting in this little section here where as he's undressing after the fire has gone out, it briefly flares back up dramatically just to highlight his scars and this one seemingly unhealed wound. It made me wonder why did the fire suddenly just light back up almost unbidden? 
Well, we've seen other instances of things just flaring or breaking in his presence. So is Quoth doing it? It's possible. There's also a mention of multiple scars that are silver and old. Some of those are bound to be when he was whipped at the university, and that's what had led to Quoth the Bloodless being a story, because he was whipped and he didn't bleed. We later find out why, which we will go into once we get to that part of the story. We'll stick a pin in it. The next day, Bast makes excuses for Quoth. He's charged with being an unreliable narrator. Quoth waits until everybody's been gone for a little while, and then he goes to the smithy, where he, again, tells lies in order to get things that he wants. He spends a story about wanting to get rid of some blackberry bushes, and as any satellite knows, the way to do it is just rent a goat. Or a flamethrower. But goats are more fun. Says who? Can you pet a flamethrower? You shouldn't. Anyway. He spins a tale about how his grandfather always said that the autumn is the time to get rid of things that you don't want coming back. Which seems like a suspiciously made-up proverb. We go to the next chapter, halfway to Noir, and Chronicler is reportedly no longer limping because limping does no good because his feet are that sore from walking. Now... I have been in situations where my feet are so sore that limping does no good, but what I am doing no longer seems like walking. It sounds like he's just dragging himself along the road, and then he happens upon one of the other great causes of unreliable narration, an illusion. He thinks that he's seeing a small fire close to the road, but as he keeps going further and off the road, he realizes what he's seeing is a large fire far away from the road. <laughs> yeah, he initially thinks that it might be a cook fire, and then he gets a whiff of it, and he realizes it's not. His senses are lying to him. He sees the person sitting at what he thinks is a cook fire, and he thinks that that person has a sword, and it's very quickly revealed to be a cudgel of iron. Speaking of illusions, again, with... Coat versus Quoth. Coat is described as being slow and almost sickly, but Quoth springs to his feet rather quickly when he sees Chronicler. It seems like Quoth is still a young, spry person where this shell that is Coat is unable to do such things. We go very quickly from it being a situation where Chronicler is afraid of the stranger on the road to the stranger on the road saying, get behind me, I'm going to have to protect you, why the hell are you here? The thing that I took away from that is when Quoth says, I never know what to tell you people, he ends up settling on a convenient lie. Yeah, sure, demons, if that helps. It's funny to me because he actually looks at Chronicler and goes, honestly? And then he lies. It reminds me of a bit of advice I always heard where you should never say honestly when someone asks for your opinion because that implies that you would ever tell them anything other than your honest opinion. And we see that a bit with Quoth as well. It goes really quickly from it being that situation to all of a sudden these wagon wheel sized spider things are coming at them and now there's five of them. We only really see them from Chronicler's perspective, which is to say brief because he's quickly knocked out. And then the whole fight is pretty much just hand-waved away. We don't get to see it. This is a case of third-person limited narrative perspective, where it's very focused on Chronicler. We're basically sitting over Chronicler's shoulder for the duration of this particular chapter. 
everything is told mostly from his perspective, even though we have a third-person narrator. And in this case, as soon as Chronicler gets knocked out, we don't know what happened. We can assume, because we later find out that Quoth has kept a piece of the Skrail, and we have foreknowledge of what the magic system is in this world, we can figure out that there's probably something to do with sympathy. I doubt that Quoth was able to take on five Skrail without any supernatural means. There's also sort of a, an intimation that the Skrail are attracted to the remains of their own kind. Just the fact that keeping a part of the Skrail was considered horrifying to Bast. There's some property that means that if the body is not properly disposed of, something bad could happen. We don't know exactly what it was. Something that happens a lot with people who feel like they really need to step it up and help is that even if they're not feeling up to it, they'll say that they are, just so that they don't disappoint people. For those who can't see it, Will is pointing at himself. This is me. I relate very strongly to this. Chronicler wakes up and he's just dazed. He sits up and Quoth asks, can you help me with all of the cleanup? And he's like, I'm pretty sure I can. And then he promptly passes out. So once again, we don't actually see what Quoth does with the Skrail. We see the next scene, which is him carrying Chronicler like a sack of potatoes back to the inn. And he's getting back late, mind you, too. It'd be like if I showed up with just an unconscious body without telling you that I've been gone. <laughs> but he did sort of tell Bast that he was gone. He left a note. If I had left that note, I somehow don't think I'd have much of a home to come back to. You might be living in the guest room for a day or two. Yeah. <laughs> a note? <laughs> And not a very good note. If you're reading this, I'm probably dead. Anything I say after that is not going to be taken well. <laughs> In this particular case, we also know that Bast sees himself as being capable of helping. He feels hurt and betrayed that Quoth would leave to go take care of this dangerous situation and not ask for help. Quoth is used to being this lone hero. He doesn't very often play nice with others. He's not good at relying upon others. Then Bast is really upset that Quoth went out without telling him, and then he had lied saying he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't go after them. Quoth responds with, are you upset by the lie or the fact that you didn't catch me at it? Which is sort of a dumb deflection. I don't know that it's a dumb deflection. I think that it's a fair question at a very inappropriate time. It's the deflection of someone who doesn't fundamentally think that lying is inherently bad. Especially when it's lying to protect somebody. And Quoth very oftentimes thinks that he is lying to protect people, even capable people, because he feels like it's his burden to take on rather than something that he could use a little assistance with. It would not have killed him to ask for help. <laughs> In fact, he probably would have less scars and, and less need for Bass to sew him back up. And that actually brings up one of the bits about Bast's aversion to iron. When Quoth tells him to go get the sewing kit, and Bast's response is, I'll go get one made with proper bone. So he, he uses bone needles as opposed to the normal iron needles. None of your nasty jagged iron things stabbing you like little slivers of hate. I like that yeah. as a visual. He kind of channels a little bit of Dr. McCoy from Star Trek IV. <laughs> what is this, the Dark Ages? <laughs> 
Quoth continues to lie a little bit to try to make Chronicler look better. Specifically, when Bast finally notices the unconscious body that has been thrust upon him. Did this fellow help? Quoth is like, he distracted them a little bit. Unreliable narration doesn't have to be malicious. It's oftentimes accidental and result of a limited perspective. In the aftermath, when Quoth finally goes to bed, Bast is very clearly protective of his teacher. It speaks to a more intimate relationship. Bast sings a little soft lullaby to him, which speaks to Bast's slightly alien nature. So the next thing that we get is the next morning. There is a short exchange between Chronicler and Quoth that when you're reading the word nowhere, it doesn't necessarily look like nowhere, but when you say it out loud, the town's name is essentially nowhere. And there is a joke about how Chronicler is now in the middle of nowhere. Home to dozens. Just like our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Granted, I will be thrilled if we get to dozens. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) We also find out that Chronicler definitely wanted to come here to interview Quoth. But he also says something about wanting to move on to interview the Earl of Badenbright. It's not entirely clear if that's actually the case or if this is actually a clever ploy to get Kvothe's attention by playing to his ego. If it is, it works. <laughs> well, Kvothe's ego is... It's actually pretty big, despite his appearances and protestations to the contrary. He, in many ways, does believe the hype about himself. You can take it to heart when he says that the best lies about me are the ones I told. At some level, he can't resist the bait. It's interesting how he, once again, focuses in on names. And he questions Chronicler, who he's had all of five seconds of conversation with in the middle of trying to kill the Skrail. And he's like, what is your name? And immediately he is told, you can call me Chronicler. Which is a nice little non-answer. And both pretty quickly picks up on that and says, I didn't ask what I could call you, I asked what your name is. In the interest of narrative unreliability, we also get an example of this in terms of the mating habits of the common Dracus. Even in contemporary society, we've grown up with dragon stories. And Chronicler, who is this great debunker, ends up upending a lot of these and says, yeah, turns out it's just a dumb lizard. A fascinating lizard, but just a dumb lizard nonetheless. A really dumb, huge lizard. It kind of reminds me of people encountering Komodo dragons in the modern age after thinking that dragons are just a fairy story. When Chronicler actually says what his name is, Devin Lockies. Lockies is clearly a derivative of names such as Lackless and Lockless. Quoth almost to himself says, oh, so you're not a Chronicler. You're the Chronicler. It's more than a title. And at that point, Chronicler, for all intents and purposes, is his name. In modern society, there are a lot of people that have chosen names. I've encountered this in a few different ways. In my family, most of my aunts and uncles have gone by their middle name. Though my uncle Tommy's name, there's no official documentation at all that has anything to do with Tommy Thomas, anything. But somehow that's his name. 
a lot of people who don't particularly care for their very first name don't go by it. They'll go by a middle name or they'll go by a chosen name. And then you've got people in the LGBTQIA plus community who, for one reason or another, whether their gender is different than they were assigned at birth, or they have a poor association with the name that they were given as a child, will change it. It becomes kind of a ritual for many people, but it also is a really tough decision to come up with a different thing to be called. I went through 35 years of being called a name that I have a poor association with, and I don't want to be called that. It is referred to as a dead name, and it is extremely rude to try to ferret it out. It's extremely rude to ask someone about it, especially when it's somebody who presents as a different gender than the one they were assigned at birth. And I think that names are things that you can try on and discard if you need to. They're also extremely personal. I do want to actually talk a little bit about Lockie's, that name. If we think of Kvoth as sort of this mystery to be unraveled, then we've got this character whose last name is Lockies, Lock Keys. We can see him as the person who's going to help Kvoth unlock that mystery. But also unlock his story. So I think it's a really interesting dichotomy between those two. There are also theories that Kvoth is descended from the Lackless family. Specifically that he is the nephew of Melo and Lackless? Melo and Lackless, who is the eventual wife of Mayor Alvaron in book two. There's also a part that comes out just right after this where Kvoth shines through a bit. He puts on that dripping with sarcasm offer of food and drink and a room for the night to Chronicler. He smiles with too many teeth. And in this case, it almost seems a little like he's got a dangerous touch of the fae around him. And this is also where we start hearing more of Kvothe's nicknames and legendary honorifics. I love how Chronicler says Kvothe the Arcane and Kvothe Kingkiller are two very different men. So even as a lot of the stories that Kvothe has told about himself are ones that he himself started, that story has kind of grown out of his control, maybe in ways that he hasn't strictly anticipated. We also do learn that it's been not even two years, presumably since he killed whomever he killed in front of the fountain in Imre, which kind of closes in our time frame a little more. But in that time, he's done everything he could to make people think that he's dead. People don't look for you when you're dead. All of this points back to both not being the most reliable narrator. He does seem to know a little bit too much about what makes a good story to be someone who would ever let the truth get in the way of that. The next thing of note is that Chronicler says some people say there was a woman. Kvoth has a very visceral reaction. Eight inches away, a bottle of strawberry wine breaks or is shattered. Really quick, we don't actually know which woman from the story it is. We have an assumption that it is Denna, but I wonder if it could be Ari because he also has a very close relationship with Ari. I also wonder if it could be someone like Davy or Fella or even Vachette. So another thing that I wanted to note out here, in the first chapter, when he's polishing the bottles is one of the few times when he starts to sing, 
So I'm wondering if each of these bottles that he's polishing is in some way a reference to one of these people from his past. The strawberry wine would remind him of when he was in Traven with Denna. I like the language that is used in that the bottle is shattered. This is the second time we've heard Quoth referenced in terms of shattering. The first time we heard that was from the sandy-haired young man's recounting of the stones in Imre where Quoth supposedly killed an unnamed person in front of the fountain. Another thing that seems a bit uncanny is that the room becomes unnaturally quiet and Chronicler's throat closes. I don't know if that's through natural means or if it's another instance of potentially both causing it. And there is also that unnatural silence of the inn, which seems a little bit on that supernatural side as well, the, the silence that is described in three parts at the beginning of the book. And at this point, Chronicler is actually legitimately afraid, and he might be rethinking his decisions. It kind of reminds me of that scene in Lord of the Rings where Gandalf is talking about the ring to Frodo and Frodo is accusing Gandalf of trying to steal it and Gandalf for the first time reveals a little bit of his true power to Frodo and it's actually kind of frightening. He seems to grow a few inches taller, his voice becomes deeper and more threatening. I also like how Quoth is initially resistant to spending time telling his story to Chronicler until Chronicler starts talking about how people are already saying these terrible things about you. Where do they get these stories? Well, they're just what's told. At that point, suddenly, Quoth says, you'd use my own best trick against me, you'd hold my own story hostage, which is something that we will later see him do with Florian. It's how he gets himself out of the Fae. It is a clever trick. And it works. And then they dicker a little bit about how long it'll take him. I think that Chronicler is using a bit of a negotiating tactic here. It can't possibly take you three days. Or in Velsiter took me two. And that seems to hit Quoth right in the ego. <laughs> and gets him to say, oh, it will take me exactly three days. And of course, he would pick three because he knows how stories work. And three is a magic number. Before he acquiesces to this, he's like, fine. You want to leave so quickly? I will tell you my whole story in a sentence. I trooped, traveled, loved, lost, trusted, and was betrayed. Write that down and burn it for all I care. Which is not actually what he wants to talk about. Well, it's not actually all he wants to talk about. His ego will not be satisfied by just a sentence. <laughs> it really won't. Again with Quoth making himself seem more dangerous, he alludes to the idea that he would not just let Chronicler leave. He can't let someone go without telling them the actual story. Well, he can't let someone go if he feels like they are going to bring danger to him. Which is interesting because the person who is most likely to bring danger to Kvothe is Bast. <laughs> and he trusts Bast and has Bast living in his home. I'm going to also throw this out here. The person most likely to bring danger to Kvothe is Kvothe. Which is why he has gone to so much trouble to try and smother Quoth under this mask of coat. The last little bit of this chapter brings back Iron. Chronicler mentions, you are Quoth, but it still says the man who called himself Coat. And he seemed taller. I think that Coat is a glamour. I think that Coat physically changes him. And he answers, I suppose I am. And his voice has iron in it. 
At this point, we're going to talk a little bit about how unreliable narration plays into our current lives. It reminds me of Akira Kurosawa's classic film Rashomon, which tells the story of three travelers who all witnessed a crime taking place and then are giving their own honest accounts of it. But those accounts differ dramatically simply because of what their prior knowledge is and what their perspective on the events were and where they were seeing it from. I mean, this is why eyewitness testimony is so consistently inaccurate. If you were to tell me to give you an honest account of this morning, just what we had for breakfast, well, I might be able to give you the accurate things because I can look at the receipt on the coffee shop bill. If I were to tell you about how it tasted or what we did over that breakfast, it would differ from the account you gave just because we remember different things. And it was only a few hours ago. Right. I mean, how do we expect people to accurately remember something that happened three days ago? Or in this case, with Kvothe, he's going to start telling this story that sounds like he's telling a bit-by-bit accurate retelling of his life from when he was 11. And we can assume that he's about 20 years old right now. And throughout that story, we're also going to see him balancing his checkbook in real time as he keeps a running ledger throughout the entire story of the exact amount of money that he has in his pocket at any given instant. Now, I have had instances where I have had financial difficulties, and I can tell you a rough amount of money that I had in my bank account when I was unable to pay for things or when I was feeling very stressed and strapped. But it's not down to the penny. And he's recalling every single purchase that he made. It gives it an air of sounding accurate in something that could be complete bullshit. And the thing about unreliable narration is that it oftentimes is not even malicious. It feels real, generally, to either the person telling it or to the person listening to it, or both. Our brains fill in a lot of blanks a lot of times, and some of the things that it uses to fill in those blanks are just things that seem right at that instant and may not actually be true. Someone tells you a story, and they're telling it as best they know. You're then trying to remember that story, so you're telling it as best you know. But even in that game of telephone, even with everything in good faith, there's going to be distortion. I mean, this is why I can't tell jokes that I've heard. I can't remember everything verbatim. I think I've had that problem myself a few times. <laughs> of course there are those times where being an unreliable narrator is malicious. And of course there are times when, even if you're not attempting to be malicious, the end result is that someone is hurt or someone is told inaccurate information that then goes on to perpetuate and continues along this path that ultimately leads to either heartache or hurt or just people coming up with these exaggerated stories that either don't make sense or are completely fabricated by the time that they get back to whomever they are about. Sometimes it can go toward creating a myth that is larger than life. And sometimes it can go toward rumor and speculation that does no one any good. I think about historical fiction in this context a lot. Take, for instance, the play Hamilton. I'm not saying anything negative about the play itself, but it is first and foremost a work of entertainment. And there are certain changes made for dramatic purposes. 
or narrative purposes. Right. There's just not time to go over all of this or this makes it sound more exciting. I mean, we do this in our podcast recap. I go through and edit out some of the bits. We don't go over every little tiny thing that happened in the story. We're trying to hit the interesting parts. You can't reduce somebody's true and accurate life story to a two-hour musical without having to, let's say, cut out the fact that Hamilton had many children and we only hear about one. These were changes made for dramatic purposes, not for historicity. And so it's cool to listen to or watch Hamilton, but you should never mistake it for a history. It's inspired by history. The same is true anytime you go and see a biopic movie. There's always going to be changes that are made, mostly just to tell the story the way the directors want to tell it. Because, again, to bring up Gaelic Storm, they're never going to let the truth get in the way of a good story. And an interesting point to be made is that a lot of the times with many biopics, you look at even amazing films like Hidden Figures. If you look at it with a critical eye, there is an element of what is known as a white savior trope. I'm sure that there were decent people that helped the three main characters that the story is referencing. I'm sure that there were decent people who, at least for the time, didn't view themselves as racist, that did things that they thought were helpful, and ultimately probably were, but I in no way think that their accomplishment of breaking down those barriers should be attributed specifically to the white person in this case. I think in some cases it's meant to make the audience feel better. So now we come to the point in our podcast where we talk about our phronemos of the week. As a reminder, the phronemos is an Aristotelian concept for the practically wise person. This week, Phoenix, you're the one who has picked out our character. My phronemos of the week is somebody who appears in the first chapter, but is there to give a background or a texture to the town more than is meant to be a main character. He's one of our crowd of five from the night before, and that would be Graham. He's a carpenter. He works and lives in a very small town where beautiful things are not valued as much as they would be in a larger town where artisans and craftspeople are prized. He took so much pride in making that mounting board. He could have given it to Quoth unfinished, and it probably would have served the same purpose. It is a background object. Instead, he took another day to put more oil on it. He spent hours, reportedly, making the word folly legible. He put up with some really tough conditions of that wood smelling awful when he put hot iron to it. And in a way, he's repaid with a little bit of dishonesty. He wants the story. Folly is an odd name for a sword, and Quoth just doesn't reply. He's just like, uh-huh, noncommittal answer. Mm -hmm. He spoke to me a little bit because I also enjoy making art, and in some cases I like making the thing that enhances the beauty of something else. And it's nice that we see him taking pride in that. He's not just a throwaway character. He's not just going to melt into the background. He has a purpose in this town. He has a purpose in the story. 
even if you are yourself a supporting character for other people, or if your job isn't necessarily to be the superstar, that you can still take pride in the things that you do. I really like that. That's a good one. Thank you. So now it is time for us to take Master Elodin's lesson to heart and learn some interesting facts. This time it is Will's turn to impress me. And I better do so, otherwise she's going to be a cruel, heartless person and make me eat a cherry. Blech. So, are you ready to learn something interesting? Impress me. Alright, so today I'm going to tell you about the Mystery Lake. Rupkund Lake in the Himalayas of North India is also known as Mystery Lake. At an altitude of over 5 kilometers, it's frozen for 11 months out of the year, and subject to occasional deadly ice storms. The lake takes its name from its inhabitants, namely hundreds of human skeletons. Dun dun dun. The lake and its surroundings are littered with approximately 200 human skeletons that date from approximately 850 CE. The National Geographic team that investigated the skeletons traced the origins of the remains to what is now modern-day Iran, as well as a few from the local Indian population. To make matters even more mysterious, all of the skeletons seem to bear a common cause of death, namely a devastating blow to the top of the skull from a rounded object slightly larger than a baseball, with no other signs of injury to any other parts of their bodies. So how did they die? That's the question, right? So the Nat Geo team concluded that a band of travelers from Iran was traversing the mountains with locally hired porters and guides when they were caught in a hailstorm near the lake. Without any shelter available, they succumbed to blunt force trauma, and their bodies fell down the slopes, collecting in the lake. So are you saying that the hail killed them? Baseball-sized hailstones will do that. Weird. Yeah. So? It does sound very plausible. I didn't ask if it was plausible. I asked if it was interesting. I know. I'd want to hear more. What's your next fact? Ooh. Alright, so how about we talk about the one time that red paint actually made a vehicle go faster? Go ahead. So, if you spend a lot of time around a dry dock, you'll notice that most of the ships are painted red below the waterline. This goes back to the time when even the largest ocean-going vessels were made of wood. As an ocean-going ship travels through salt water, it picks up plant life, barnacles, and worms that eat at the hull, which can deteriorate the ship's structural integrity and mess with the hydrodynamics, causing it to run slower and burn more fuel. So to counteract this, shipwrights used a copper coating or a lead paint with copper oxides in it as a biocide to keep the hulls as drag-free as possible. And this copper in the paint gave it its red color, which in fact actually did make the ships go faster. Today, our paint compositions have evolved to the point where it could be just about any color, but because shipwrights are a traditional lot, most of them still opt for red. I'm not going to make you eat a cherry. <laughs> So it is interesting. It is interesting. Excellent. Well, I will make sure that we have links to this in our show notes, uh, to both stories. And to view those show notes, you can become a patron on Patreon. The link will be at the end of the show. So next, we come to our seven words from life and from the books. I believe it's your turn for the books. It definitely is. And I had a few options to go through this time around. I didn't know if we would accidentally touch on any of them while we were reviewing our section, but we didn't get them specifically. So I'm going to go with, don't believe everything you hear in stories. Kvothe says this to Bast. He also says, 
they lie to you. When I came to that part in the story, I highlighted it and said, put that on the crest. Stories by their nature are there to entertain. Quoth is looking for stories that help explain who the Chandrian are. That's a common thread throughout the whole two books that we've got. He believes Scarpy when he is a child, when he first hears the story about Lanray. He believes him so wholeheartedly and it sticks with him so strongly that later on in the books when Denna has made a song that chronicles Lanray's life, Quoth becomes irrationally angry at the, quote, inaccuracies in her song and tells her she has to change it, specifically regarding the pronunciation of the town Myrterennial and the painting of Lanray as a hero versus a tragic figure. I remember that, and it's a difference of perspective. Scarpy's version paints him as this monster by the end, whereas Denna's version paints Lanray as someone who's been wronged, grievously wronged even, which I think is a very interesting way of upending that. Again, unreliable narrations are in play, and Kvothe at that point at least wasn't really taking that to heart. He so explicitly trusts the story that he heard from a person when he was 12 years old but not the person who has been researching this information. For one reason or the other, he chooses to accuse Denna of not researching well enough. Now, I would like to hear your seven words. All right, so my seven words are ones that, when I utter them, I know almost always elicit a smile from you. And they typically occur after a long day of work. We've both had kind of a tough time of it. I'm not cooking tonight. Is Hawaiian good? <laughs> I, I'm able to recognize when we're both in that state where it's just, we would like to be able to be the responsible adults and we would like to have a home-cooked meal between the two of us. And at a certain point, we have to realize that neither one of us should be around sharp objects. Or open flame. <laughs> at that point... It's good to recognize it, and it's okay to enjoy a little bit of Spam Masubi. And with that, we come to the close of our second episode. And as always, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. So thank you very much for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Please join us next week when we examine chapters 7 and 8 of The Name of the Wind through a lens of storytellers. We would like to extend a huge thank you to Shawnee Jang for our theme music, and many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production and editing, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, become a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash where you can get access to custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. And as always... Here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Uh. And that's why you don't give Phoenix carbonated soda before she records. <laughs> <laughs> the bubbly. The bubbly.